Hi, guys, and welcome to the Healthified Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah McLaughlin, holistic health coach, writer, and wellness entrepreneur who has, for over 15 years, delved deeply into my passions of nutrition and health. Before we get started, this episode of Healthified is brought to you by Gratified, a natural foods company I launched in order to make a more impactful change in the packaged food space. We offer gluten-free, primarily grain-free, dairy-free granola, nutrition bars, and baking mixes. Everything has been created with real food nutrition, blood sugar balance, and metabolic science in mind. For a discount off of any Gratified product, visit gratified.com and use the promo code HEALTHIFIED at checkout. Also, if you're enjoying listening to this podcast, I would be so grateful if you could scroll down and submit a rating or review. Five stars is awesome and very much appreciated, but of course, honest feedback is also welcome. Today's guest is Dr. Laura DeCesaris, a functional medicine health strategist specializing in women's health and high performance. Dr. Laura works with driven, ambitious women, helping them to rebuild their metabolism so they can experience optimal brain health, body composition, and natural vitality. She takes a female-centric approach to health and wellness, teaching women about their bodies and brains so they can make better decisions for their health and leverage their biochemistry for optimal performance. You can find her contributions in outlets such as Forbes, NBC, Mind Body Green, Greatest, Parade, Well and Good, and other publications. Dr. Lara is based out of Scottsdale, Arizona, and works with clients virtually around the world. I learned so much in this episode, you guys, and I can't wait for you to hear it. There were so many moments when I was nodding my head and definitely had some aha moments and new realizations. Some highlights of our conversation include how mindset shifts and evolving your sense of identity come into play when making big changes to your health, the power of taking responsibility for the changes you need to make, getting curious, asking the right questions, and being intentional to get you to where you want to be why time and energy are her client's biggest currency, and how she works with them to optimize both, why regulating the nervous system is important, especially if you are used to operating in a way that keeps you in a hypervigilant state of being, her biggest biohacks across different pillars of health. Let's head to our chat. Dr. Laura, welcome to the Healthified Podcast. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you today. Yeah. So what you do being a functional medicine health strategist, I just want you to kind of get into it, kick us off and tell us a little bit more about you, your background, what you do and how you got to where you are. Sure. So my professional background is I'm a functional medicine doctor. And if someone's listening and you're not sure what functional medicine even is, maybe that's a good place to start. Mm -hmm. uh, functional medicine really looks at the whole picture of someone's health, meaning if I have someone come to me with headaches, let's say, I'm not just giving them something to get rid of headaches. Of course, it's important to get people out of pain, but I'm helping them identify, well, what's contributing to the headaches? Is it hormones? Is it related to foods they're eating? Is it stress? Is it dehydration? Is it you know stuff to do with like relationships in life? So we're really mm -hmm. looking at the person's body and biochemistry. We're looking at their mental and emotional stress. We're looking at their lifestyle. We're looking at where they live, their environment to get the full picture of each person's health. And that's what lets me really personalize an approach to health for each person because everybody's different. And that's why I think a lot of cookie cutter protocols don't work. And that's why people feel so frustrated about their health. So I'm really passionate about helping people with health in this way 
from because of my own experiences with health. Um, I actually got diagnosed with an autoimmune issue called Hashimoto's disease when I was mm-hmm. 21. It's an autoimmune thyroid condition getting more and more common. And maybe I was just very stubborn at 21, but when a doctor told me I was just going to have to take medication for the rest of my life, I didn't like that answer. And I wanted to understand why that was and how it happened. And I found I, I didn't really get answers. They kind of just said, oh, it just happens. So I started diving into learning more about it. was really fortunate to meet a functional medicine practitioner at the time. Um, I was living on the East Coast. It was actually in New Jersey. And what struck me about her was the type of question she was asking me. You know, I was, like I said, I was 21. So I was wrapping up college and she's asking me about my coffee intake and my stress levels and how I'm working out and what's my nutrition like and all of these things that I really hadn't been asked in a doctor's office before. So that appointment with her changed my life because she helped me understand that even though I thought I was eating healthy and exercising regularly and everything else, it I wasn't doing that in a way that was aligned with what my body needed. There were things mm. that I had to change and I really had to work on things like prioritizing sleep and looking at my relationship with stress and you know everything that comes with that. So really by going into and studying functional and integrative health and nutrition and functional medicine, it let me apply what I was learning to myself, which was kind of cool. I was like my first test patient. Yeah. Um, And it really let me put my Hashimoto's in remission. I haven't had to be on medication for 10 years at this point. It's been totally no antibodies in my blood work. Um, And it really just kind of set off a love affair with helping people better understand their bodies and what they need, not just to make them better in the moment, but to set them up for long-term success by looking at their lifestyle, by looking at their daily rituals, by looking at their relationship with their nutrition. Yeah, that's amazing. And I I mean, we talk a lot about kind of functional medicine on this podcast and me being a former holistic health coach, um, the big believer in kind of looking at that whole picture. And I think what's so amazing about functional medicine in particular is that it can look under the hood even further in terms of like blood work and, um, you know, stool testing and things like that, that are so paramount to someone's healing journey when, you know, we've just been told for decades that it's calories in calories out, eat less, move more when there's just so much more to the picture. And I'd be curious, just even from your personal story, when you got your diagnosis, like, could you paint us a little bit of a more clear picture to offer perspective of like, maybe what some of those lifestyle habits looked like before, and then those changes that you had to make? Of course. Yeah. So at the time, like I said, I was in college when I got diagnosed. So think a pretty demanding schedule. Mm -hmm. Um, I was exercising daily, but to me, what I had learned up until that point was exercise looked like going to the gym after class and running on the treadmill. And that was exercise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in terms of diet, I was eating all the whole grains and trying to get my vegetables and everything else. But I didn't know at the time things like how to leverage protein and that mm-hmm. fats were actually okay for you. And they mm-hmm. were yeah. not in fact terrible. And the diet foods were not always the healthy foods. And, you know, I was drinking soy lattes thinking it was healthier than regular coffee, just because that was what I knew until that point. Mm -hmm. And then what I found afterwards was a lot of the things I thought I was doing in pursuit of health were terrible for what my body needed. And Mm -hmm. similar to what you just mentioned, you know, the kind of testing we did was far beyond just blood work. It was 
gut testing. It was looking to see if I had any food antibody reactions. We did some nutrigenomic testing, which is looking at, you know, genetics, your DNA to see how you handle certain types of foods. Um, We did vitamin and mineral testing. We did hormone testing. And I found that for me, actually, you know, eating a bunch of whole grains was one of the worst things for me. I had reactions to almost any kind of grain. I was so inflamed at the time. I think it's, I I think it's crazy when I look back of pictures of myself then, like now I can see it. I'm like, you you poor girl, you had no idea. Yeah. Um, Yeah. My, you know, my gut was a mess. Soy was one of the worst things for me. It was like totally messing with my hormones at the time. Um, And in terms of exercise, I was, I already had this high stress load, just being at a big university and working while I was studying and, you know, looking to apply to grad schools. And then I was like killing myself on cardio machines seven days a week and wondering why am I not losing weight? Like, what am I doing wrong? And, uh, you know, for me that really opened the doors to getting curious about what kind of workouts could be better for me. So I started strength training and started playing around with HIIT workouts and, doing things like that more that were actually way more time effective and didn't stress my body out quite as much as, you know, an hour running on the treadmill or on a stationary bike every day. So it it really was like a complete paradigm shift around, wow, all of these things I thought I was doing and that I was focusing on, it's actually the other stuff. I have to look at how do I change my perception of stress and address the stressors I can change and you know, work out and eat in a way that's a little bit more aligned to what my body needs and, you know, really look at what are the other things contributing to inflammation and stress of the body? Like, you know, being in college, like avoiding the diet foods, making sure we're not like going to parties every weekend, Yeah, uh, looking at environmental things. Like I think of living in a house with all these college girls and we always had candles going and you're spraying perfume and body spray everywhere. Like all of these things that now we know are really not that great in terms of our health and our hormones, because they can be really inflammatory, especially if you're dealing with autoimmune or hormone issues. So it really was like learning a completely new way of looking at health that required a lot of unlearning of things that I'd learned in the previous 20 years of life. Yeah. And I think that that can be the most challenging for people is that process of unlearning because you become so attached to a certain way of doing things and your belief system and then new information comes in that challenges that. But I think, again, that's like the power of testing, right? Because it it can really show you, you know, the results of the current situation and then kind of the steps that you need to take in order to improve that, like that can be really motivating. So did, did you feel overwhelmed by kind of having to do this overhaul of all of these aspects of your life? Or did you just sort of have a good handle on taking baby steps in order to make these changes? You know, I, I've always been a very analytical person. Mm-hmm. So I think that played <laughs> to my favor. Um, yeah. I also, like I mentioned, I was working with a practitioner who really helped me figure out like, okay, here's what we focus on first. Like, what are the biggest needle movers? Let's make those changes. Mm. And then as you start to see results, you start to feel better. You get this momentum energetically where you're like, okay, what else can I do? Because I finally feel a lot better. But, you know, we focused primarily first on just stress and my nutrition. For me at the time, those were things that, you know, my practitioner and I felt were the biggest issues in life. And like, how do we, how do we get those things figured out first? And then- Mm -hmm 
just start swapping out the exercise, start looking at personal care products one by one. You know, I think when I first started looking into that, her recommendation was, and this is what I use with clients now is like, what are the two or three things that you're putting on your body all the time? Those mm-hmm. are the swaps you make first, right? Because it can definitely feel overwhelming if you're looking at your your beauty products and you're like, there's a couple hundred dollars worth of stuff here. Like, I don't know if I can just go throw this in the trash can, but right. when you start it little by little and you're like, oh, wow, my skin's clearing up and I don't get that fatigue anymore and I don't have a headache and you know, things just like, I don't look as inflamed. My eyes aren't dark anymore. Like I don't even need half of this stuff I was using because I started cleaning it out what was coming into my body. So I think it definitely can be overwhelming if you don't have a plan or you don't have guidance. You know, if you try and just do everything at once, uh, I think that works for a small percentage of people who are just wired to do things cold Turkey. But for most of us having a plan that kind of builds on that momentum And, you know, to your point that you just said with lab work, like, I think it would have been really a lot more difficult if I didn't have kind of that evidence in front of me of like, Hey, what you're doing right now, this is not working for you. Like, here's the, here's the story under the hood. Like, this is what's happening for me. That was like the biggest incentive to change was, wow, I'm 21. And this is what the inside of my body is like, like, this is this is something I have to work on. Um, If I didn't have that, it probably would have been easy to be like, "Hmm, is it that important that I I make these changes? So I think having the data to back it up and having a plan with someone who's been there before to help walk you through it really helps cut down on that overwhelm. Was that challenging being 21 at a time where kind of, you know, you're, you're surrounded by peers and it almost has to be like action steps aside, it almost has to be a change in mindset is huge, but also kind of like your identity. Like you have to kind of just like put on this new identity of like, oh, this is who I am now. This is what I have to do in order to be a better and healthier version of myself. Absolutely. And I think I think mindset is the piece we always want to skip when it comes to health because mm-hmm. everyone thinks they don't need it. And it's probably the most important part and the most difficult part. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it's way more comfortable to stay where you are, even if it's not serving you, even if it's a little bit uncomfortable, but you know it. Yeah. And it's yeah. much more, it's much, it's much harder and much scarier to try something new. Uh, for me at the time, I think it was just kind of also a very pivotal time. I was like heading into my senior year in college. I was trying to figure out like, what am I going to do with my life? I went to to college at Cornell thinking I wanted to go into research. I like hated working in a research lab. It was so lonely. So I was feeling very like lost anyway. Um, but it definitely took a lot of changes. And it, it's like a hard time in life when you're like, wow, even like social groups need to change a little bit because maybe this social group, the things they do are not really conducive to where I want to go to how I want to feel. So mm-hmm. I think sometimes, and I think this happens at any age, there's like a little bit of loneliness initially until you yeah. find, you find your people who are going to support you along the way. And some are people who have always been there and some are going to be new people. But I think that, you know, if we call it like that community aspect of a health journey, people don't think about that enough. And it's a really, really important part. Like it's hard to do this stuff on your own. You need people who are, who are understanding, who you can reach out to when it's hard, who are going to like support you. Um, especially as women, I feel like it's doubly important for us. We just thrive a lot more with that support network. So, um, I just set out to find my new 
support network. And some of them were people who were there before, but a lot of them were new people, Yeah, new people who were into these new habits that I wanted to learn about. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's great. And you're so right about, I think women just lean on other people a little bit more and especially other women. And I think that that can be a really scary aspect of change because it can feel really lonely. And then you feel as if the more you change, the more that you're going to alienate people in your life. But, you know, the truth of the matter is if they really care about you, they're going to support you no matter what changes you undergo. But also as you step a little bit more in to this better, healthier, newer version of self, like you're going to attract those people that will then, you know, be very involved in this new chapter. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I think, you know, we, we talk about health journeys a lot and people like to, you know, if you look on social media, you'll see the highlights of those journeys. And like some of the hardest part is like saying goodbye to the habits and the things you did and the people you were around to like, can't come with you on that next part of the journey. Yeah. Uh, Because sometimes, unfortunately, when we're going on health journeys, like some people don't understand and they project a lot of their own discomfort onto us, you know, why aren't you eating this? Why are you eating that? Like, why are you so obsessed with your health? Right. Um, Even if you're not being truly obsessive, it's just, we have to recognize sometimes when other people are seeing new changes, like they knew the old you, right now you're trying to make changes. And it's a, a very difficult, challenging part that requires a lot of mindset work and setting boundaries along the way, boundaries with yourself, boundaries with others, boundaries with making sure you're not, you know, capitulating to making other people happy by not following through on those things you committed to do. And especially with any kind of chronic illness, like that stuff goes on for a long time. And I think that's a really challenging part for a lot of people is they don't feel like they have support at home or elsewhere. Like they're like, oh, I have to make my meals by myself away from everyone else. Or I can't right. go out because this is what these people eat. And I don't know how to eat that. And I think it's just really important for us as coaches, as practitioners to walk people through how to navigate that. Yeah. And I mean, that really resonates with me. And I mean, I'm 38 and I feel like over the past, I want to say 15 years, I've been kind of on this journey of I'll just be very candid. I mean, I did a whole podcast episode yesterday, so everything's out in the open anyway, but just my relationship with alcohol. Um, and you know, I'm not going to lie in my past. I was kind of quite the party girl. Like I was really wild. Um, and you know, I've just been through, I've just been through these times of questioning it. And so I think when someone, anyone questions their relationship with something, let's call it alcohol, it can sort of bring to light for other people and have maybe them question it. And then that makes them very uncomfortable because maybe they don't want to change or, you know, even let's take food, for example, we're around the holidays, right? Like we're going, we could go visit our in-laws and, you know, we eat a certain way in order to take care of ourselves, but maybe that's not kind of their status quo. So you almost feel like you're creating friction by like turning something down or not partaking or what have you. Like these situations are so embedded in life and it can be really hard to navigate. I mean, I know I came up against it with my clients when I was health coaching all the way. And I almost had this like 
sorry, not sorry attitude. Like this is what I need to do to take care of myself. But not a lot of people feel as if they can kind of use their voice in that adamant of a way. So kind of what is your advice for that, especially being timely and around the holidays and things like that? Yeah. And I, I'm so glad you brought that up. Thank you for bringing this up. I think these conversations are just important to have because a lot of people just don't have them mm-hmm. and it can feel really lonely if you're like, yeah. well, nobody else feels this way. Yeah. But I think a lot of women do, especially I, I'm 35 on my way to 36. And uh, my friends and I have very similar conversations a lot. I think some of it just comes with age. Yeah. Uh, alcohol hits a lot differently in your thirties oh, than yeah. it does in your twenties. Yeah. Um, but also just you know, getting a little more aware, self-aware of like, well, why do we do these things? Like, am I having this glass of wine? Because I really enjoy having it with this meal and I'm out with friends and we're having a conversation I really enjoy. Or am I pouring this glass of wine because it was a long day and I feel frazzled and scattered and I need this to calm down. Those are two very, yeah, yeah, those are two like (laughs) very different reasons for having alcohol. And I, that's always like when people are, you know, worrying about like, oh, do I, can I have this? Can I not have this? Like, my question is always like, what's your why? Right. Right. Like, I I think even with food, like, right. Like, oh, you love cookies. Like, is this something you love and enjoy? And it's like a great part of your day. Or are you like pounding cookies back late at night because you're tired and you're stressed and you're sitting in front of the TV and you're literally not even thinking about it. Like the, the awareness around our behaviors, I think is key like yeah. generally, I think people intuitively know that alcohol is not good for them. They know that sugar in excess is not good for like people know that. Right. It's figuring out like, well, why do I gravitate towards it so much? Yes. Like, what's my reason for it? So that comes back to mindset work and just like looking at, well, what is my reason? And and if if my reason is actually I'm finding not a great reason, like what can I swap it out with so that if I am gonna have this glass of wine. It, it it's not going to like mess with my head. It's not going to drive me into that guilt cycle. I'm not going to wake up feeling terrible because it was, it was again, part of that meal that I enjoyed with people. It was part of a tradition or something like that. Um, but it's really hard for most of us to look in the mirror and be honest with ourselves about stuff. I mean, you can see this on any social media post where a doctor comes out and says about, you know, alcohol is bad. Here's why one look through the comment section, you'll see like, people, there's a lot of emotions that come up for people. Oh yeah. And and we could put food here. We could put workouts here, like whatever you want to talk about. Right. But I think the most important thing here is like putting your blinders on and staying in your lane. Meaning like, don't worry about what other people are doing. Like someone else's relationship with nutrition or workouts or alcohol literally has nothing to do with you and shouldn't control your relationship with that. Like right. you're the one who has to be able to go to bed every night and wake up each morning and feel okay with the choices you're making for yourself. And right. other people don't have to understand why you do that. Right. Right. And that's really challenging because I think a lot of us are wired to want approval of our peers. We want yes. people to to do what we're doing, to agree with us. We want to do that. And it's really like, it is an act of bravery and being really courageous to put your foot down and say, no, I'm going to evaluate my relationship with this because it's not serving me. And maybe everyone isn't going to understand, but that needs to be okay for me. I need to be okay with this. So something I use with my clients is the rule of three, meaning mm. when we're talking about something like a relationship with a, a junk food or alcohol or something, I, I basically say, I'm like, 
You can complain about other people's opinions of what you're doing three times. If mm. after the third time you're not doing anything about it, you lose the right to complain. Mm. So it's kind of like a way of just saying like, it's okay to experience those emotions and like figure out like, okay, I need a little time to like navigate how to do this. But it gets to a point if where you're continuing to complain about how you feel about not sleeping well, but you're not making these changes that you know are going to benefit. You don't right. get to complain about that anymore. And not in a harsher, mean way, in a very loving way. Right. But, you know, Tough my love. job, yeah, my job yeah. of coaching people through is helping them figure out how to make these behavior changes. Right. And sometimes you need someone to kind of put their foot down and say, like, look, you've been wanting this goal of whatever it is, weight loss, better hormones for a year, mm-hmm. but you're not making these three major changes. So can we commit to trying them for 30 days? Can we do it for 30 days? Like you can do anything for 30 days, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and just see how you feel. Because usually when people cut that stuff out, they feel better. And then it gives them momentum that they keep evaluating that relationship. And you're like, huh, maybe I don't need that glass of wine to unwind as much as I thought. Maybe a walk outside or some breathing actually does do the trick. Interesting. Um, yes. And we try and do this in a way that doesn't completely derail people's relationships with socializing and things like that. So, you know, we're not saying that like, oh, this is bad. You can't do that. It's bad. It's just like, right. do I need that right now? No, not right now. Yeah. 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 Speaking of the bad versus good, and I'm sure you probably hear that a lot from your clients, but I just had this aha moment years ago as I was kind of stuck in the habit of labeling things that way. And I was like, I'm trying to moralize something that's not inherently a moral or an immoral issue. Like the fact that you're eating the cookie as you label bad, like that just results in feelings of guilt and shame. And those are really powerful emotions, you know? And, and so it's like, when you drop that and you sort of look at things a little bit more objectively, like, is this nutritious or is it non-nutritious? Is it serving me or is it not serving me? Like it sort of helps to put more of like an objective lens on it that you can sort of make a little bit better informed decisions without the anxiety, guilt, and shame attached to it. Yes. And I, I think that sometimes those things that we attach to it, the sense of right or wrong, the anxiety, the shame, the guilt, like that becomes more dangerous for our health long-term than if Mm -hmm. like you just ate the cookie. right? Right. And like, you might be thinking like, Laura, you just had this conversation about how sometimes we can't have the cookies. Well, do I think it's ever a good idea to have like 12 cookies every night? No, like that's a lot of sugar. Like we know that that's not going to be good for us, but having one here or there, like, is that the end of the world? I would much rather people have a neutral relationship with the cookie, eat the cookie and not like the whole next day be like, my God, I have to get an extra workout and to work off the calories in that cookie. And why did I do that? I fell off the wagon. Now I have to start all over again. Like think of all of the things you could dedicate that mental energy to once you like remove having those conversations in your head about the, the morality of your food and your workouts and your health, right? Like you could dedicate that mental energy to just being present with your family, to doing the things you love, to your business, like to so many other things. And it it breaks my heart when I talk to so many women who are, they're so caught up in analyzing every little aspect of their health that there's there's almost no time for life outside of it. Right. Um, and to me, that's a much more important thing to kind of clear up and, and clear out 
uh, and really help repair, repair those relationships with food, with their body, reconnect to their body and all of that. Yeah. And there's scientific research. I've done a lot of deep dive into this subject area of the fact of like your emotions during the eating experience actually can influence things on a physiological level, like metabolism, digestion, um, you know, so it's just, it, it does play a part and people don't give it credit. And so you kind of think of this like whole mindful eating movement as being like a little woo woo, like who's going to sit down at a table, light a candle and just, you know, chew their food mindfully. Cause everyone has like a device in front of them or they're watching TV or, you know, trying to navigate children or whatnot. But, you know, it really is like, I think a big missing piece of the holistic health puzzle is just this encouragement for mindful eating. I agree. And I think right now it's really polarized, especially in the online space, meaning you have people who are telling you like, don't eat any of these foods. And then you have people who are saying you can eat any food. Don't listen to those people. Mm -hmm. And there's not many people in the middle ground being like, Hey, this is kind of some of both. And it depends on the person like being super restrictive and also telling people that every food is healthy. Neither of those are helping the general population. And like, look, you and I are in the U S in one of literally the least healthy developed nations in the country. Like clearly this is not helping people. Right. But I think where the focus needs to be is like, again, what's the relationship to eating to food. And then within that, what does this person need? What foods are serving this person and maybe not serving this person? It doesn't mean it's a bad food, but maybe it's not super great for person A. Right. Not food that's super, that's not great for person A might be amazing for person B. But we don't know that if we just try and put these big labels and generalized eating approaches over, over everything in the world. Like the person who's coming to me from a place of, restriction and is like afraid of food, like they might have to spend some time being okay with eating things that aren't great for them just to repair their relationship with eating. Absolutely. And And I think this is, yeah. And sorry to interrupt you. I being kind of in the wellness space, I think this is what I really wrestle with. Like I'm kind of like part of my business kind of mandates that I do the whole social media thing, but I feel like every time I get on there, there's these just dogmatic messages that are being thrown at us. And I mean, I, I do think that there are people like yourself. I looked at your Instagram. It's amazing. Um, I do think that there are people that are really relaying information in such a helpful way. But on the other side of that, I, I just think all of these messages that get thrown at you just creates so much confusion. And I feel like I have a pretty good head on my shoulders with nutrition but I found myself even around this time last year, like getting, getting really swept and I don't want to create any confusion here, but I got really swept away in this, like eat more protein. And that's to say, like, I, I do think obviously that is um, a very important message that is being um, highlighted, but for me and my particular body, I was over consuming protein and my blood work reflected that. So I got a little nervous and I was like, I don't, I, this just isn't working for me, but I was just all confused. Does yeah. that make sense? Like, so what would be your advice for kind of navigating all of that yeah. information and figuring out what works for you? I mean, I, I, I guess yeah. finding a practitioner like yourself in order to sort of have this individualized approach. You're right. And I think, I think a lot of people have good intentions and we also have to remember that 
everybody's human. So I don't care whether it's a influencer, a health coach, a nutritionist, a physician, like they're also going to talk about the things that have worked for them because that's their Mm -hmm. experience. Right. Mm -hmm. So we also have to think like, okay, is, is this person the same gender as me? Do they have the same lifestyle as me? Do they have the same health history as me? Like something that works for a 35 year old white male who weight trains seven days a week and doesn't have kids is going to be very different than something for a 49 year old perimenopausal woman who is running a business and has kids and doesn't have time for all of that and has a health history that's different. Like both protein to use your example could be very important for both. Right. But the macro splits that work for the young man may not be appropriate for the Mm -hmm. perimenopausal woman. And Mm -hmm. I think we also see it get taken a little too far. Like the big thing I see is like, turn all of your food into protein food. So now we have the protein cookie, the protein ice cream, the protein coffee. And it's like, okay. Um, a couple of years ago, it was all keto stuff. So it's like, it just goes, you know, it just right, goes. Right. And it's like, again, started in, in good, you know, in, in a good way. People were like, okay, when people eat more protein, they stay full longer. They have more right. balanced energy. Their blood sugar is more regulated. They hold on to their lean muscle. Yes. All things that are important. But then sometimes what I'll see is people are eating so much protein and then their fat and carbohydrate intake are really low. Mm-hmm. And protein is for building, fat and carbs are for energy. So mm-hmm. if you're spending a couple months eating primarily protein, eventually you don't feel that great because you don't have your energy sources, right. especially if you tend to be a lean individual and you don't have a lot of body fat to tap into for energy either. Mm-hmm. So my advice when people get confused with all of that is like, Okay. Let's, what, let's, you know, let's say we're taking protein intake, for example, instead of immediately calculating macros for people, I'll say, let's be curious and really intentional. Mm. There's two things about paying attention to our protein this month. And let's start here. Let's start just trying to have 25 to 30 grams at a meal. And I say it for that reason, because in studies, we need kind of that amount to stimulate some of the metabolic processes involved in building muscle and repairing metabolic health, you know, getting 10 gram spritz all over the day, isn't going to have mm-hmm. the same impact as that bigger bolus of protein two or three times a day. Mm-hmm. And then we find after a month when they made that change, how are they feeling energy wise? How are they sleeping? Do they feel like they're getting good results with their exercise, whatever that may be, or do they not feel like they're getting results? Do we need to increase this? Do we need to change the types of protein, right? And we can, again, I'm using protein just because that's the example, but we can do this with anything, right? We can do this with intermittent fasting. We can do this with carbs. We can do it with whatever you would look like. Yeah. But for each person, I think it is going to look different, you know, and uh, I have, in addition to Hashimoto's, I also got diagnosed with lupus a couple of years ago, which can impact your kidneys. So even though a lot of people will tell you that too much protein is fine for the kidneys, that was not my experience. Right. Um, when I went too high, it definitely affected mine. Um, and so I do, I have to watch and I had to figure out like, what's the magical range for me that mm-hmm. I can either build or maintain my muscle that I can feel really good and that it doesn't impact my kidney health. Mm. And if I had just blindly followed someone's macro food plan, who was telling me like, to eat 250 grams of protein a day, like that would not work for me. Right. That would just, that would not be a good fit for me. Someone right. else might be fine with that. Um, so it takes, 
it's a lot of work to navigate this stuff on your own. And I think health is really interesting because it's like one of the few things that people will try and DIY, mm -hmm. even if they don't have a background in it. They're like, I'm just going to look at the internet and figure it out on my own. Right. And like the question I ask people is like, do you do that with your finances and like your investing and stuff like that? No, like mm -hmm. usually you hire somebody to help you figure it out. Yeah. Um, same goes for health. Like just take a season to help like have a professional walk you through, even if it's just how to navigate all the information. So you know what to look for. So you feel more confident. Right. And yeah. And it's so true. Looking to the internet or looking to books and there's a lot of great information out there, but you know, I just think being able to have that handholding. And like you said, just even for a short amount of time, just to build a foundation of what you need to do that works best for you will just carry you on for the rest of your life. I mean, it'll just be able to create the sustainable change that everyone's looking for anyway. It's sustainability is so key. Um, so you work with a lot of high achieving women, which I think is really interesting. Um, what issues do you commonly see? Like what goals are they trying to achieve? Like what are some protocols that you find yourself putting them on. Um, talk to us a little bit more about that. Yeah. And I, I want to just say really quick, sometimes the terms high achieving or high performing woman can be a little polarizing and people mm. will be like, well, I don't know if that's me. Like, I don't know if I want to do that. And basically to me, to, to be a high performer, to be a high achiever, you're just looking to not like get the bare minimum out of life. Like, like you want to feel really good. You right. want the best for yourself. Like you don't have to be an athlete. You don't have to be an executive. You just have to want, you know, to feel your absolute best as much as you possibly can. That makes you a high performer. That makes you a high achiever. And that's actually really a good thing. Um, the biggest thing that I see and a lot of the women I work with, like they're busy, either they have their own business or they're, you know, working from home or they're working in corporate or they're a stay at home mom, which is like, the most stressful job of all for a lot Absolutely. of people, especially <laughs> with little kids and time and energy are their biggest currencies and they're lacking them. Mm. Meaning like they, they know that they need to do things to take care of themselves, but it seems like there's always this to-do list. There's always stress. There's a thousand things to do and there's no time. There's not time to figure this stuff out on their own. So when we talk through different health strategies, whether we're working on gut health, you know, maybe they're feeling bloated or constipated. Maybe we're working on hormone health. Maybe they feel stressed and burnt out. It's all from this lens of how do we maximize their time and energy here, right? Like mm. I'm not going to give someone a bunch of homework that takes them hours to do. I'm not going to go tell the working mom with two kids to do an hour long morning routine every day. Like it's just not going to happen. Right. So we have to figure out like the strategies that help them balance their hormones and improve their gut health and reduce cortisol and build resilience. How do we do this in ways that are super efficient and fit into the lifestyle they have? So when I send out my info asking for people's health histories, we're also going through their daily schedules. I know when their kids' soccer games are. I know when they're launching something in their business. I know when they're giving that presentation at work because we have to really consider all those aspects of a person's life to help them learn how to fit in things like meal prep and exercise and biohacks. Like we can't just say, go do this big list of things and consider that this person has like 20 free minutes. Right. <laughs> right. So, you know, figuring out how to help them do that is a big 
is a big piece of it. And it does require some, some mindset work and some shuffling of priorities throughout the day. Um, and it really carving out this little bit of time to pour back into yourself, because I find most women that I've just described are kind of like last on the totem pole. Yeah. Everybody else, the business is coming first, the partners, the kids. And then if there's time, they'll do the self-care, they'll do the workout. Um, or sometimes maybe it's just tweaking things they're already doing to free up more time so they can actually like enjoy their evening with their family and not feel exhausted and collapse on the couch. Yeah. And I can really appreciate that clarification that you gave on the high achieving term. And I think you're so right. Like professional life aside, whatever your work looks like, or if you're a stay-at-home mom, what have you, like, I think that to you can be a high performer in any way, shape, or form. And it's kind of reminds me of that quote, like, the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. And, you know, speaking from experience, like I'm just someone who would probably label myself as like a former type A perfectionist. Like this is something I'm really working on unlearning in terms of the role of work and achievement in my life and what it means to have self-worth and things like that. But, you know, it's like, I, I tend to just go all in to sometimes no matter what I'm doing, even if it's just cleaning the house, like, I'm just like, I'm going to do this the best of my ability, you know? And I, I think this raises a larger question and a good question about your client's nervous systems, or if someone is listening and is this is resonating with them, like what the role of the nervous system and how they're operating has to do with all of this. Do you see that coming up in your practice? I do. And especially more recently, because I think the nervous system is becoming a little bit more of a buzzword. People are mm -hmm. like, what's this nervous system yeah. regulation work you speak of? Like, what yeah. is this? I'm seeing breath work everywhere. And I think, I think this is like kind of twofold. First is helping people understand what the nervous system is and does. Because again, a quick glance on social media will tell you that some deep breathing is the cure-all for nervous system dysregulation. And while that helps, it's a little deeper than that um, because we have to look at things like the gut microbiome and the vagus mm -hmm. nerve and you know history of trauma, like all of these other things that contribute to this system in our body that's literally controlling our ability to adapt distress. Like yeah. as much as we don't always want to be in this state of the nervous system called the sympathetic, which is our fight or flight high stress. We also don't always want to be in the parasympathetic rest and digest stage either. Like we actually want to be able to kind of oscillate between the two. Right. You know, when we talk about things like avoid burnout, building resilience, like a resilient brain, a resilient nervous system can adapt rather quickly to stressors. It knows when we need to push it into that sympathetic. It knows when we can drop it into the parasympathetic. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of this, while yes, we have to look at the body, like I said, we have to look at the gut. We have to look at, are we breathing properly? We also really have to look into the mind here. And by mm -hmm. that, I mean, we have to look at like how we've been, how have we been operating in life? Because for a lot of busy, driven, high-performing women who were often called overachievers, I can't stand that phrase, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> their worth has been associated with how much they get done, their yeah. to-do list, their productivity, their achievements. And it's setting us up for being in this state where it's like, oh my God, I have to get everything done. If I don't get everything done, like I'm not good enough. 
Yeah. Like my worth is tied to how well I do in all of these things. My worth is tied to my achievement and doing that long-term does tax the nervous system. It taxes our ability to, to be able to make those oscillations between it, right? It kind of puts us in this autopilot state and the, the neurochemistry that goes with that patterning is just not favorable to, to keeping things balanced that way. So a lot of the times, while yes, the breath work and the meditation and things are really important, we also have to get into that uncomfortable work of like, why do I feel like I have to do that? Right. right. Like this was probably one of the, the most challenging parts of my personal health journey. It's still something I have to work on is like, why do I feel like my worth is tied to how much I get done or like mm-hmm. how good I am at something like, wow, where did that come from? And can I approach this with a loving curiosity of like why I feel this way? And like, just like teach myself that it's actually okay sometimes to rest and it's okay other times to push myself. And I have to trust that my body knows what to do and that I can listen to it. So yeah. it's, it sounds a little out there. I know because people just want to know, like, give me the routines to regulate the nervous system, right? Like give me the supplement. Like, yeah, of course. Right. Wouldn't, wouldn't, that be, yeah. wouldn't that be magical? Yeah. <laughs> I, would, I would love that too. Yeah. Um, but it's a little bigger than that, right? It's, it's looking at all of these other things that impact our health way more than, than I think. And having dealt with autoimmunity myself, having worked with many women over the last decade that have dealt with autoimmunity, there's always a component there of like behavior and relationship to self and boundaries that has to get fixed for things to really resolve all the way. And what does that work look like kind of on a more tangible level? Like, do you recommend aside from breath work and meditation, which a lot of people resist, um, it's uncomfortable. Well, yeah, it's really uncomfortable. <laughs> and I talk about this on the podcast I have in the past of just that study that um that proved that people would rather sit in a room and shock themselves versus sit in silence with their thoughts because yeah, it is it can be really uncomfortable. So how might someone go about doing that work? Is it about journaling? Is it about working with a therapist? Like what are some of the tools that you suggest with your clients and or that you've had positive experience with yourself? Yeah. I think everyone probably has different tools that call to them. Like I'm not a big journaler. Some Mm -hmm. people journaling makes such a big difference for them. Like putting a pen to paper that didn't work for me, but I tried it. I was curious about to see if it could work. And I know for some people it's an incredible practice. Mm -hmm. Um, I found therapy extremely helpful. It was Mm -hmm. nice to have someone to bounce ideas off of who was like separated from my personal life a little bit. I found that very helpful just to, just to evaluate like how I function in relationships, like my relationship with boundaries, again, that relationship with the need, the need to achieve and that it's not always a bad thing, but I don't want to like get blindsided by it. Um, I also think that's a big reason why biohacking has gotten more popular. Granted, are there some things in biohacking that take it a little bit too far? Sure, probably. But it's the whole notion of getting uncomfortable consistently so that it it, bec- it becomes more comfortable when you don't expect an uncomfortable situation, mm-hmm, right? Like mm-hmm. I don't believe anyone jumps in a cold plunge because they're like, "Ooh, I love freezing. Like it's yeah. so good. <laughs> but yeah. when they, when they go in cold plunges consistently for a longer period of time, it becomes easier and they find they can adapt to stress better and they can mm-hmm. handle uncomfortable conversations better. And it, it's like you teach the body it's okay to be uncomfortable. Right. There's a, 
there's a great book called the comfort crisis yeah. um, that I suggest a lot of people to read. And it's, it's the hard truth that like a lot of us are just really comfortable. Yeah. And like, we're, we're afraid to make those changes, but when it gets to the point that you being comfortable means staying in situations that are negatively impacting your health and your nervous system, mm. you got to get uncomfortable to get out of it. And anything new is going to be uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Like yeah. our brain, our, when we, when we do new things that we can't predict what'll happen, the like little primal part of our brain is like, mm, I don't know. Like we yeah. don't know what's going to happen. Might be dangerous. Yeah. And so we have to be okay with trusting that things are going to be fine. And so I think, whether it is journaling, whether it is therapy, but also having some sort of practice that forces you to be uncomfortable along the way, just to prep you for that a little bit can be really, really valuable. Yeah. And I think the more that you put yourself in those uncomfortable situations, you realize that there's growth on the other side. Yeah. Like, and, and I just think that that can be like who you evolve to be is just a little bit more of a higher version to avoid a sweeping generalization, but just a higher version of her, who you were. And that just kind of motivates you to keep climbing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so absolutely. to piggyback what you said off of the power of the mind, and obviously I love talking about mindset work and all these things, but what kind of came up for me was the power of the mind and stress management. Like, I think this term stress management can seem very abstract and you kind of know the actionable steps to take like journaling, meditating, being a couple, but like, you know, taking a long walk or taking a bubble bath, like those are all action steps that you can take. But I would be curious to hear your thoughts on like the power of the mind and the way that we're talking to ourselves on a daily basis in order to manage stress. Yeah. This kind of, it takes me back to what you mentioned earlier when we are talking about like the power of our emotions on different parts mm -hmm. of our physiology, but like your body hears every thought that you have. So to paint a picture of this, like how would you feel if you had someone next to you all day who was saying things like, don't eat that food. Oh, what's wrong with you? Look at you in the mirror. Like saying all these negative things about you all day long. Like we would never put up with somebody else saying that. Yeah. But we'll say it to ourselves internally all day long, right? We'll, we'll go past a mirror and we'll pinch things and we'll we'll suck things in and we're, we're constantly like be telling our bodies we're not good enough. Like we're not pretty enough. Like we're not safe enough. And even with foods, it's like, I, I talk, I think about this a lot when people have fear of foods and they're like, Oh, if I eat this, my stomach will hurt. If I eat this, I'm going to feel terrible. Well, you're already telling your body how to react. Mm. You're telling it, Oh, this be danger, danger, danger. Hello. Yeah. Uh, and like the body it's going to respond a certain way, right? When you're coming into situations stressed and unhappy and fearful of things, that doesn't let your body do what it needs to. All it's hearing from you is like alert, raise the alarm, something bad is about to happen. And whether we realize it or not, that sets off this cascade of neurochemistry, of inflammatory signaling, of all of these other things that end up with the food we were looking at that we're like, this is really going to bother me. Like, Oh, look at that. It bothered me. Well, of course it did. Like you stressed yourself out. Yeah. You didn't let yourself get into a digestive state. You told it it was something dangerous. And like, of course, sometimes those foods are not great for us. I'm not, not saying that, but I'm saying like there's power in controlling our thoughts and the way we speak to ourselves and how that actually impacts our physiology. And that's something that we all have the ability to do for free starting right now. It's difficult. 
but it's absolutely possible. So, you know, to take the example of looking in the mirror, because I think this one is common for a lot of women. I work with a lot of women in their thirties and forties and bodies are just changing a little bit, look different than they were when they were 18 as they should. But, you know, imagine if instead of looking for what's wrong in the mirror, you started doing mirror work where you looked yourself in the eye and complimented something you really love about yourself. And I'm always amazed at how many women tell me that was really difficult. Yeah. And then that brings up a lot of emotions and it's kind of this breaking point where it's like, wow, yeah, I, I, I never like tell myself I love myself. I never tell myself that there's things about me I love. I just point out all the things that are wrong. And I'm willing to bet we would never say the things we say to ourselves to our best friends or our daughters or our mothers, but we say them to ourselves. And like that really has to change, whether we're talking about eating behaviors or, you know, aesthetics or whatever that might be. Yeah. And I love the idea about personifying that voice. I even said this to a previous guest because I I feel like I'm pretty aware of my thoughts. Um, But I I was driving in my car one day and I just, I kind of popped out of my, you know, I was kind of like in a drift mode and I just popped out and I was like, huh, I'm kind of in a bad mood right now, but I don't really know why. But I was able to kind of pinpoint it to the thoughts that I was thinking, even though I couldn't really tell you exactly what those thoughts were. But I was like, I must be thinking some kind of thought that is resulting in this very negative emotion So even if you can't really pinpoint what those thoughts are, like, I think this idea of personifying it, and even I'm imagining like the little devil on the shoulder, that's just like whispering these things in your ear the whole time. It's just like, try your best to sort of a become aware of that voice, because not a lot of people I feel really understand this comment or this concept of your thoughts, not being you. And so just being able to be aware and then allowing yourself to kind of separate that and just sort of changing the inner dialogue, first neutrality if you need to, but then kind of upshifting to positivity if you can. Absolutely. And uh, my friend, Michelle Shapiro, she's a functional dietitian. Um, She does a lot of work with anxiety. And that's something that she even does too, is personifies those feelings. So like, instead of feeling like, and thinking and saying like, my anxiety is flaring, like, I'm going to pick that up and put it on the couch next to me because Mm -hmm. I am not anxiety. Mm -hmm. That's not part of me. Mm -hmm. Anxiety is a feeling. It's a messenger. And by, by taking that out and looking at it next to me and saying, what's going on? What are you trying to tell me? Mm -hmm. That just allows you to be in a different mental state versus laying claim to it as it's mine. It's who I am. It's never going to go away. I truly don't believe anybody wants to be anxious all the time, Right. but sometimes we have to get creative with our practices to be able to look at it and analyze it a little differently. And, and similar to what you said, when you said, Oh, I'm in a bad mood, like be able to pause in that moment and be like, where's this coming from? Mm-hmm. And look, this isn't, this isn't easy. And we call these practices for a reason because you have to practice them. Yeah. It's, yeah. Oh, it's always a practice. But, you know, if we don't ever even try, we're not setting ourselves up for that long-term relief because we're not, we're not separating that out and being able to, to look at it in a way that's a little less emotionally charged. Yeah. And I, and I do think that my meditation practice offered me the ability to be able to do that out in real life. And I'll be completely honest and say, I don't meditate anymore. Like it was actually one thing that I had to drop because I have a two and a half year old 
and the mornings have just become crazier. Yeah. And, and so I gave myself permission to drop that, but, you know, I've been meditating on and off for years. And I think one of my big whys of meditating was that so I could go out into daily life and still have the ability to be conscious of my thoughts and know that I have control over them and to choose ones that might be better serving me as I carry on my day. And I feel like I kind of like reached that. And again, it's not perfect, but it's like, for me, it served its purpose. And I feel like that can be said for any type of self-care. And I think in the wellness world, we can sort of like hold on to these wellness practices or feel like we need to really fill up our tool, tool belt with like all of these different things. When in reality, to like bring it back home to everything that you've been saying, like, let's sort of get really intentional, figure out the why, pick and choose, keep what works and leave what doesn't. Yeah. And the, the tools that we learn, they're going to be different in different seasons of our life. So mm -hmm. you mentioned now you have a two and a half year old, like the toolbox you use now is going to be different than when you were single and didn't have yeah. a kid at home. Right. And the same goes for people who are healing from illnesses. Like the toolbox I use to heal from Hashimoto's is not the toolbox I use now to maintain optimal health. They were two very different things. Mm -hmm. If I kept doing the things I had to do to heal now, it would feel very restrictive. It probably wouldn't serve me anymore. Mm -hmm. But at the time, it was what I needed. And so we can apply this to a lot of the common things, right? Whether it's dietary approaches or like intermittent fasting. Like I think of the person who's using fasting to help with their metabolic health. The stuff you, the stuff that you use, the type of fasting you use to heal insulin resistance is not going to be the type of fasting you use to maintain metabolic health once you get there, because then other things have to come into play because you changed. So I think that's a big hangup for a lot of people. And especially as women, when we change, because our hormones change pretty dramatically every decade of our lives, we do the things in our thirties that we tried to do in our twenties. We do the things in our forties that we tried to do in our thirties and we get frustrated that they're not working, but we aren't acknowledging that we're different. We're different mm -hmm. than we were then where we have different life situations. We have different stressors. We have different physiology and we have to be willing to be curious and intentional and try those new things and be willing to let go of some tools that maybe worked really well in the past but aren't helping us anymore. Right. Yeah. And that's such a beautiful perspective. And I know I can be guilty of that. Like prime example, you know, this was probably five or six years ago when I discovered like bulletproof coffee and intermittent fasting. Yeah. And I remember I did that for a stint and I'd never felt better. I was just like, you know, because prior to that, my blood sugar was super imbalanced and I didn't really know anything about insulin sensitivity. And so my body changed in a very positive way. Yeah. But then I got to a point where I was like, okay, this isn't really working for me anymore, but it worked so much back then. Like, oh. and I felt very attached to this thing and, you know, and it takes a lot of, I know for me, just like acknowledgement and, you know, not courage. That kind of sounds like a little bit too bold of a statement, but I was like, I actually have to let this go because it's really not working for me anymore. And yes, now I eat breakfast at 8am when like years ago, I wouldn't be able to fathom eating before 11 a.m., you know, but it's yeah. like, it just wasn't working for me anymore. And I was like, I'm hungry. So I'm going to eat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. And so I think it just people just being able to give themselves permission to drop things if it's just, like you said, not serving this chapter of life. Absolutely. And it's, again, that's the hard stuff, right? Like 
actually following the plan once someone lays it out, taking the supplements, like that's not that difficult. It's yeah. it's the other stuff. It's like letting go of emotional attachments. It's separating self-worth from things. That's like the hard work in any health journey, wherever you're at. Yeah. Gosh, I can't believe the time is flying by and there's so much I still want to talk to you about. So, I mean, this has just been so great, but for the sake of our time and and respecting um, your time, I would just love to know, since you do have such a hand in kind of the biohacking metabolic world, and I know a lot of my audience would be interested in that, what are kind of some like short five tips that you would give women, whether 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, um, just across kind of the pillars, whether that's exercise, nutrition, sleep, mindfulness, what are some of kind of your big to put you on the spot, your big, my big biohacks home. for each yeah. of them. Or yeah. General, biohacks? yeah. They yeah. can be biohacks. Mm-hmm. I'll say, I'll say there's one rule with that, which is for women always know what's happening with your hormones, because mm. I think that really has to come into play with biohacks. The biggest mistake I see with women with biohacking and not their fault. It's a very male dominated field is they try and do things that the men are doing. Yeah. And men are 24 hour systems, rinse and repeat. Women, like, especially if you have a cycle, like four different versions of you every yeah. month, right? And yeah, we got to kind so of think true. about what's happening in each stage with that. So, you know, let's start with exercise. I will say, like, I still think the biggest biohack at any age is doing some kind of strength training. Like mm. having lean muscle is only going to help you across the board. Um, however, I think that sometimes we like spend a lot of time exercising in a way that's not really efficient. Mm-hmm. So figuring out like what works for you and like, that's really what biohacking is, right? Like figuring out what makes your body work the best. Mm. Um, and for a lot of women, it's actually less intense exercise and more general movement. Meaning like there's great benefits of high intensity interval training. Like no one's arguing there, but like exercise doesn't have to be this miserable thing where you're running on the treadmill for an hour or taking an hour long cardio class. Like for most people, it's can I move more during the day so that I'm not sitting for 10 hours and exercising for one? Can I walk yes. more? Can I stand more? Can I get a pedal desk or a treadmill desk? And then I don't have to spend 90 minutes in the gym because I'm giving myself that movement and I can be more efficient with my workouts. Mm-hmm. Uh, studies show us that more low level movement that way throughout the day is way more beneficial than being sedentary all day and going to the gym for an hour. So awesome. That's number one. Don't overthink it. Just move your body as much as you can, generally speaking. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. For nutrition, again, across all of those age groups, rather than focus on like, what diet do I need to follow in which decade? I think the biggest biohack is just creating a plate that helps you balance your blood sugar. Mm. Meaning I'm going to have some protein, I'm going to have some fat, and I'm going to have some fiber. Fiber Mm -hmm. could be your veggies. They could be fruit. They could be whole grains if you eat them. But if I have those three components on my plate versus just a plate of pasta or just a plate of meat, if most people have those three components, they're going to get a lot of nutrition they need, and it's going to help their blood sugar stay stable. And if we know anything about nutrition for each person, the best personalized diet is one that keeps their insulin sensitivity strong and their blood sugar balanced. Mm -hmm. For some people that might be lower carb, for some people that might be higher carb. Um, But if you focus on the blood sugar that will help you figure out what actually is the best diet for you. Yes. Uh, what are our other pillars? What are we looking at? So we sleep. Did, 
exercise, sleep. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Sleep, sleep should probably be the first thing that everybody optimizes. Everybody wants to focus on diet and exercise, but none of that's going to matter if you're not sleeping well. So I personally love like aura ring. That's what I wear. That mm-hmm. made a huge difference for me in understanding what positively and negatively influenced my sleep because I would be in bed sometimes for eight hours and still be tired. And then I saw like, oh, I'm not getting any deep sleep. Of course, I feel crappy all the time. Of course, I'm not recovering well from my workouts. And sometimes it's it helps guide things like meal timing and what evening routine works for me and what should my bedtime be and things like that. So tech can be really helpful. If you don't want to get tech, I would say the best thing you can do is a consistent sleep-wake time. Even more important than the amount of sleep you get is consistency with the time you go to bed and the time you wake up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Regardless of where you are in age. Um, I think that's the biggest thing for most people is set consistent bedtime and waking up time in the morning. So when you got your aura ring, I'm just curious, and you kind of discovered some of those instances where you weren't getting the deep sleep, what changes did you make in order to improve that? Yeah. For me, I found, um, meal timing was really big for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so now like if, if I can eat like early bird style, like between yeah. five and six, that's actually best for my sleep. Yeah. If I have later dinners, like sometimes you're, you know, you're going out with friends, things like that. But if I eat at like eight o'clock at night, like my sleep is not going to be great. I know I'm going to miss yeah. out on deep sleep. It takes my body a little bit longer to, to just kind of shift out of that post-digestion phase and be able to do that. So that was a big one for sure. And then, um, having an evening routine, like I have a lot of biohacking tech tools just because I find it really interesting. But for me, yeah. I found things like red light in the evening or a PEMF mat, like helped me go to sleep much more quickly and sleep much more deeply. So like I work those things into my evening routine because I know that even if I have a super stressful day, they're going to help me offset that because sometimes you know, running a business, doing family stuff, like you have yeah. busy days. Um, so I found that those are two tools that worked really well for me. Do you have the red light mask? I don't have the red light mask, but I really want one. I know I do too. I thought about asking Alec, my husband for it for Christmas. And then he'd probably look at me like I was crazy. Cause I could just, I have a tendency to like collect these things. And then sometimes I don't do them after a certain amount of time and they're not cheap. And so I think he would laugh in my face, but it's, it's kind of, I feel like now just being in my mid thirties, it's something that I'm like, when I was 25, I was like, I don't need that. Now I'm like, I might want that. Yeah. <laughs> I, someone, I, it, <laughs> I saw someone post about it on Instagram and she was like kind of justifying it. And it made sense. She was like, I mean, yeah, it's a little pricey, but like, it really helps with this, this, and this. And she was like, plus it's my face. Like <laughs> it's my face. Like just- I, I like that you can like walk around and still see out of it versus yeah. like right now I have a red light unit and it's great, but like I'm stuck in front of it for however right. long I want to use it. Right. So I, I love a multitasking moment so I can see the benefit of that. Yeah. Same. All right. What about stress management? Stress management. So I actually think instead of people focusing on like, how do I reduce my stress? Like we're all going to have stress. But I think instead focusing on our relationship with it, our perception of it is mm. is more important. There's a really good TED talk on this. I'm totally blanking on her name, but her whole her whole spiel is about people's relationship with stress. Because in studies, we see, again, talk about you know the conversations you have with yourself, right? People who say things like, oh my God, I'm so stressed. Stress is going to kill me. They actually have a higher likelihood of stress having negative morbidity and mortality impacts yeah. on them. 
Meaning if you say that your stress is going to kill you, you're actually more likely for that to happen than the person who has the same amount of stress objectively, but approaches it in a way of being like, okay, I'm feeling a lot of stress right now. Where is it coming from? What's the lesson? Yeah. What's it trying to tell me about things that maybe I need to change, that I need to shift? Maybe I need to carve more time for myself because some stressors we have more control over than we think. It's mm-hmm. just, it's the hard stuff. Again, it's the yeah. relationships, the boundaries. And some stressors we don't have control over. A family member gets really sick, things like that, that, that are out of our control. But if we focus on that relationship with it and we acknowledge like, yeah, this is really stressful. Maybe while I'm going through this with them, I'm caretaking an elderly parent. Maybe I really need to prioritize like carving out time for me, stepping back from some other obligations to make sure that like I'm okay through this. But when we come at it from a place of analyzing the relationship versus letting it control us, those are two very different scenarios for the impact of it on our health. Mm. Um, I also think that's another benefit of some of these biohacks like sauna use and cold plunging is it's it's planned stress. So it's yes. like training you for the day the stress marathon comes so that when those big unexpected stressors come up, you can handle them a little better. Yeah. The reality right now is like, I think a lot of us let things that in the big pick in the big, big picture of things are actually not that stressful. Like we'll get derailed by an internet comment. Like this is not the thing to let, to send you into panic mode. Right. Like we have to, we have to be able to navigate our relationship with these things a little better. Was that Kelly McGonigal? That's that the did one. The TED- yeah, yeah, thank you. Her like, book, her name? <laughs> yeah, her book, The Upside of Stress, yeah, is amazing. It. it changed my life. Yeah. The same. yeah, yeah, such a great read. It's so great. Well, this has been so amazing and helpful, and I know for me, I've just learned so much. So, I mean, so many aha moments, and I just appreciate you coming on here and sharing your wisdom because, I mean, just what you're doing and and the information that you're relaying is just so needed, and just offering that hand to people who want to work with somebody individually, um, and just guiding them towards better health and ultimately happiness. So I think that that's amazing what you're doing. So I appreciate you coming on here. Um, so before we sign off, can you let people know where they can find you? Of course. Yeah. So thanks so much for having me first. This has been a great conversation, yeah. but you can find me. My website is drlauradecessoris.com or I'm mostly on Instagram or LinkedIn under dr.lauradecessoris. Um, it's always me and my DMs. So you can ask any questions, reach out anytime. I love that. And I'll put all of that in the show notes so that you have an easy click to her Instagram website. Well, Dr. Lara, thank you so much. And I'm just so glad we connected and hopefully we'll stay connected. And I just appreciate you again coming on. Oh, thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Healthified podcast and hope you enjoyed this episode. If it resonated with you, please share it with a friend or rate and review the podcast, which helps us share the health with more people. For further learning, be sure to check out the linked resources in the show notes, and you can connect with us on Instagram at healthified and at gratified. Until next time.